On Friday, August the 6th, 1801, there were wagons and carriages that were traveling the narrow roads of Kentucky, all on their way to a place called Cane Ridge. Cane Ridge was just a small church 20 miles east of Lexington. And they were all coming there to participate in what everyone believed was going to be this extraordinary event. Well, by Saturday, it was clear this truly was an extraordinary thing. The news was electrified that this populous part of state was attracting literally thousands and thousands of people. This event was called a communion. That's what they called it. And a communion basically consisted of three to maybe five days of meetings that would all culminate with the Lord's Supper. And it was something they did annually. These events attracted typically a few dozen people, maybe as many as a couple hundred. But at Cane Ridge, this communion, there were times when there were 20,000 people milling about on the grounds. They were watching, some were praying, some were preaching. There were even those that were weeping. Some stood at the edges and they mocked what they saw. But most, most people left Cane Ridge marveling at the wondrous works of God that they'd seen. The Cane Ridge communion quickly became one of the best reported events in American history. And according to a Vanderbilt historian, a man by the name of Paul Conkin, Cane Ridge was arguably the most important religious gathering in all of American history. It ignited the explosive growth of Christianity, which soon reached in nearly every corner of American life. So what was it about this Cane Ridge gathering that gripped the imagination of so many people all across the nation? Well, at the time, alcoholism was rampant in this region, and there were greedy land grabs that were seemingly out of control at the time. Also, there was an increasing popularity among universalism, which was a doctrine that believed that in the end, everybody's going to end up in heaven, and deism, which was a belief that said, God's not really involved with us here on earth. And by the 18th century, the universalist and the deist had actually joined together, and Christianity was really struggling here in this region. But churches and ministers alike didn't wring their hands. Instead, they joined hands together in prayer, at prayer meetings, church services, and even national conventions. But Friday, August 6th, it, as it progressed, it became clear to everyone who was there that no one <laughs> had adequately anticipated how many people actually were going to show up. Preachers started preaching. Sinners started to fall, dropping to their hands, crying for mercy. And believers began praying and agonizing themselves, falling down in distress for their friends and family who were sinners. Some were singing, others were shouting, some were clapping their hands, hugging, and laughing. And yet others talked to those who were distressed because of their sins. And they talked to one another, or they talked to those who opposed this work. And what you have to imagine is all of that happening at one time. 
It was kind of a picture of chaos. For four more days, the singing, the praying, the preaching, it continued. Slowly, finally coming to an end on Thursday. Few could comprehend, let alone describe, what they had just experienced. Barton W. Stone, who was the minister of the Cane Ridge Church, said, a particular description of this meeting would fill a large volume, and then the half would not be told. No one, no one could get their arms around what they had experienced. No one could explain what exactly just happened here at Cane Ridge. No one had a handle on how many attended either. The estimates are between 10,000 and as many as 25,000 total. And the estimates of conversions were somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000. But this much is crystal clear. Christianity suddenly became the talk of the region and the entire nation. Traveling to Lexington a year later, a year after the Cane Ridge experience, one man reported that he heard little else than the great revival of religion. That was a year later. It is true that there were people who were influencing things. There were human influences that were going on at Cane Ridge. For example, people who were showing excessive emotion to draw attention to themselves. But the Christian historian cannot help but see something that was at work here that wasn't natural, wasn't normal. What appeared to happen at Cane Ridge looks shockingly a lot like the events on the day of Pentecost in the first century in Jerusalem. Both were moments when faith and culture were at work, where they were added to passion and tossed together in a wild and unimaginable kind of way. When people, at least momentarily, no longer saw God through a glass darkly, but maybe for the first time in their lives, they saw him face to face. There were so many people at Cane Ridge and Pentecost that were having an encounter with God for the very first time. Cane Ridge was the U.S.'s first most notable revival and once labeled America's Pentecost by one historian. These two events had a lot in common. People met God. I wonder as you hear that story about Cain Ridge, for some of you it's probably the first time. And I wonder if you're surprised that God did something so significant right here in central Kentucky, just 20 miles down the road. It's pretty awesome if you ask me. Do you ever feel like, man, we could use something like that again? Or maybe, maybe have you ever prayed that God would do something like that in your own life? Oh, it doesn't have to be that grand, thousands don't have to show up, just you would love to have that kind of face-to-face encounter with God yourself There have been many of these revivals over the decades, which are often called awakenings. 
Now, an awakening is a period of time when God supernaturally influenced believers and non-believers alike in a church, a locale, a, re- a religion, uh, a region, excuse me, a nation, or the world for that matter, with sudden intense enthusiasm for Christianity. During an awakening, people sense the presence of God in a powerful way, maybe like never before in their lives. During awakenings, things like conviction and despair and contrition and repentance and prayer happen easily, and people hunger and thirst for the Word of God. They crave the Word of God. Many authentic conversions will happen during these awakenings, and many people who have backslidden, who have kind of walked away from their relationship with God, will repent and be renewed. I've been sensing for a while that we need God to reawaken his church. Why would we need a a reawakening? Because of erosion. I want you to think about this. It's easy to not realize erosion is happening because it's so subtle. Even though erosion can happen with little, aware, with little awareness, it can still cause tremendous damage. And spiritual erosion is the same way. Subtle, but very destructive to a person's soul. Everyone is susceptible to spiritual erosion. And it's important to know that. F.B. Myers, a famous British minister from the late 1800s, early 1900s, said this, no man suddenly becomes base. What he's saying is, no one suddenly becomes a devil. No one suddenly hits the lowest point spiritually in their lives. It is a slow, subtle slide. It's like erosion. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Screwtape Letters, writes, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. C.S. Lewis's insight is spot on. The easiest way to hell is to not realize that you're heading there. He said that the road to hell is a road without milestones and without signposts. Now, milestones and signposts are important in life because they give you and I reference points. For instance, distance runners value mile markers during a marathon or a half marathon because they give you perspective. They tell you the progress that you're making and where you are in the course of the overall race. During the Louisville Marathon in 2001, one of my running partners, David Mitchell, was running with two other runners. When all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a car pulled up next to him to announce to them that they were no longer on the course. They needed to make a turn at the next block and and go about six blocks and then take another turn and they would be on the course again. They had gotten off course because there were so few course markings on this race. If there are no mile markers along the road, it's a good sign that you have strayed off of the course. So it's vital that you make an immediate course correction. Mile markers and 
the race of life, they're those moments that reveal the progress that we've made. And they show us how much we've accomplished up to that point in the race. They also can reveal if we've had spiritual erosion take place, and they require an immediate course correction. Every one of us need to hit pause from time to time during the journey of life in order to stop and assess, how's it going? It's during these times when we realize if we've had any spiritual erosion take place in our lives. Here's a key point. If you don't look for spiritual erosion, then you won't see it until the damage has already been done. So if we're honest, I think we, could, we would all agree we could use a reawakening from God. In fact, we might even say we desperately need a reawakening from God. You know, the model for every awakening throughout history is found in the book of Acts in chapters 1 and 2. If you have your Bible or you're following along with us on the app, turn to Acts 1. We're going to start there, and we're going to track rather quickly to several different points along the way through chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. In Acts, we see God awakening, in, we see God awakening his people, and he starts his church in this moment. In Jerusalem, after Rome had condemned Jesus to death on the cross, he rose from the dead three days later. And his enemies, they were trying to explain why the tomb was empty. And Jesus kept making it really hard on them because he kept reappearing all over the place. And seeing Jesus rejuvenated his followers. And before he left the earth, he told his followers to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. We read about this in Acts 1, verses 4 and 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he tells his followers, hey, wait for the Holy Spirit. He's even telling them, expect him. Expect the Holy Spirit. And then he informs them that the Holy Spirit will equip them for the mission that he has for them. We read this in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power. Now circle that word if you're, if you're following along with the Bible. Circle that word because that, power, that word power is an interesting word. It's the Greek word dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from. It gives you a, a sense of I, idea of what he's talking about here. He says, but you will receive power like dynamite when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Verse 8 is important because it reveals to us that the Holy Spirit is where the church gets its power. The power of the church doesn't originate with men or women, even godly men and women in the church. It's from the Holy Spirit who's at work through God's disciples. The Holy Spirit was going to give the disciples the power 
to be witnesses, to tell others about Jesus. Jesus said that they'd testify about him. He said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That would be like us saying, we're going to be witnesses here in Hamburg, the 40509, and to all the commonwealth, and to the rest of the nation and the world. Because of the Holy Spirit, regular people were able to do extraordinary things. The work of the Holy Spirit isn't a luxury in a church. It's an absolute necessity You see, without the Holy Spirit working in the church or through the church, the church will never accomplish the mission of sharing God's grace and hope and love because it's going to lack power. We may have human power, but we will never hit our marks until it is the Holy Spirit power that is at work. There's another interesting word in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and it's the word witness. The word witness is an important word throughout the book of Acts, but it's really important here. You see, a witness is a person who tells what he or she knows, what they've seen or what they've heard. During a trial, when you're on the witness stand, the judge isn't interested in your opinions or your theories. What he or she wants to hear is what you know, what you saw, what you heard. It's interesting, our English word martyr actually comes from the Greek word that is translated witness. The idea that many of God's disciples have validated their testimony by actually laying down their lives. They believed in their testimony about Jesus so strongly that they were willing to actually die in order that others might know what they know. Sharing the truth about Jesus is pretty important. People have been willing to die over the centuries because of it. Well, Luke continues the story in verse 12. He says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem, which is what Jesus told them to do, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So once the group, once the group of disciples made their way to Jerusalem, they rallied together. And Luke says, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Now why is that significant? Because what we see throughout Scripture is this. Something happens when people pray. Something happens when people pray. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Peter was actually in prison for preaching the gospel. And the church gathered together and prayed for his release. We read this in Acts 12, verse 8. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And what happened next is that God actually opened the gates of the prison and Peter walked out with an angel escort. Fascinating. Example number two. Jerusalem was under siege. So King Hezekiah prays, asking God to save his people. 
2 Kings 19.19 says, Now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand. He's talking about the Assyrian king Sennacherib. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. That night, God answered his prayer. An angel of God came and killed 85,000 Assyrian soldiers. This compelled the rest of the army to retreat and to return home without a fight. Example number three. Elisha and his servant find themselves surrounded by the enemy army. Elisha prays for God to reveal God's power to Elisha's servant because his servant's freaking out. And so we read in 2 Kings 6.17, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. And that's what God did. God gave the servant the ability to see this supernatural army of God, this vast army of heavenly hosts in fiery chariots encircling the enemies that just moments before had terrified the servant. Something happens when people pray. Incredible things happen when people pray. And in Acts 2, the disciples prayed, and then the Holy Spirit showed up. We read in Acts 2, verses 5 and following. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, that was the sound of the Holy Spirit's arrival, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they, they asked, aren't all, the, all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. It's amazing. At the celebration of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and he transformed this small band of believers, around 120 disciples. And they became a group of United Nations translators preaching the gospel in the native languages, the heart languages of people from all around the world who were visiting Jerusalem. And they did this so that they could actually hear the gospel and understand it. Boldly. And courageously, they became God's witnesses right there in Jerusalem. And their witness, it was contagious. And it spread rapidly. Before long, followers of Jesus were found hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. Jesus had begun to build his church. And all the disciples, they're preaching. And the Holy Spirit is equipping them with this gift of speaking in languages they'd never learned so that people from all around the world could hear the gospel for the first time. They didn't have to hear it in a second or third language. They heard it in their own languages. Luke, the author of Acts, then records the sermon that Peter preached. And it's great that Jesus uses Peter to preach the main message. He's the speaker on the main stage that day. 
that introduced Jesus to the masses. Peter had one of the most public failures recorded in all the Bible, and I'm sure he wanted people to forget about that. You may remember, he was the one, the night before Jesus was crucified, who denied Jesus three times, and he bragged about how he would never, he, he would never do that. He would die for him. But there he was, denying him three times before the rooster crowed. And then Jesus was executed. But after Jesus' resurrection, he has this moment with Peter where he reinstates him. He restores Peter back to the position that he had before. And he reminds Peter, feed my sheep, he said. Feed my sheep. So when the Holy Spirit has Peter preach this message to reach those first converts in Jerusalem, that was a powerful proof to Peter that God had truly restored him. And you know, few knew this, but standing before that crowd was Peter, a living example of the power of God's grace and his willingness to forgive and restore. Peter explained that Jesus was from God, and he was crucified. And in part, he was crucified by the very people who were listening to his message. But death couldn't hold him in the ground. God raised Jesus from the dead. And then we read in verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. As Peter preached by the power of the Holy Spirit, the people were deeply moved. It said they were cut in the heart. And Peter continued to make the case to surrender to Jesus. The text says he even pleaded with them. And then something amazing happened. The people responded. I mean, Lots of people responded. You remember that chaos we were talking about that was happening at Cane Ridge? Well, I can only imagine there were literally thousands of people coming forward to be baptized into Christ. And I can't imagine how long it would take to baptize that many people. We read in verse 41, those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. How crazy would that have been? How chaotic would that have been to see 3,000 baptisms? How long would that have taken? When the people heard the good news about Jesus, they accepted his message. And that term accepted, it means they recognized the truth that Peter was preaching. They believed it. And as a result, they were baptized into Christ Jesus. 3,000 became Christians that day. They heard that Jesus died for their sins, and as a result, they could be forgiven. And so they put their trust in him. They received him through faith and were baptized into him. John Stott put an interesting twist on this. He said the body of Christ in Jerusalem multiplied 26 times from 120 to 3,120 on that one day. Why does any of that matter? Surveys show a majority of Americans believe our country is going downhill, that there's a kind of national erosion, spiritually speaking. 
Yet surveys also show that church attendance as a percent of population has held steady since the 1990s. And some would say you could even go back and say it's been the same steady kind of consistency since the 1940s. America's added 50,000 new churches by the end of the 20th century. That's 350,000 churches in America. The number of born-again Christians, surveys tell us, has grown steadily to 46% of adults today. And yet, given the state of moral and spiritual decay in our nation, we scratch our heads and say, how is that even possible? Well, the answer is actually rather simple. Patrick Morley put it this way. Today, Christianity is prevalent but not powerful. It's prevalent. Something people do but it doesn't have any punch. It lacks power. Which probably means that a lot of us have been doing church in our own strength. Our nation desperately needs help. And if this is how we're living as the church, we need help. And the solution is a spiritual reawakening. I want you to ask yourself, are you living your faith in your own power? Or have you been living with the power of the Spirit of God? We've not had an awakening in America of historic proportions for a long time. With increasing moral and spiritual decline, our nation seems poised, ready for a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit. But history tells us that the national revivals and awakenings are not something that you and I can manufacture. Nope, they are sovereign acts of mercy and grace that come only from God. But God loves to respond to the prayers of his people. Listen to what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says. Many of you know this verse. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, listen, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And We could use a, a healthy dose of God's healing in our land today. While the decision belongs to God alone to do that, he gives us the privilege of calling out to him through humble, repentant prayer. And you know what? He listens to those prayers. He hears us. So I want to ask you to join me in praying for God to reawaken his church. Not just here in Hamburg, but all across the commonwealth all across this nation, and all around the world. Here's the prayer. When you wake in the morning, pray for God to reawaken his church. To reawaken this church. Pray for those living in our Jerusalem, our 40509, the, the people around us in this part of our city we call Hamburg. Pray specifically, Pray specifically for people 
whose faces come to your mind while you're praying, people who are outside of the family of God, people who are looking for hope and peace and meaning, people who feel lost and they're desperate, people who are your family members, your neighbors, your coworkers. And when God pours out his Holy Spirit, he will give you opportunities. He will give me opportunities to witness, telling others what we know about Jesus and our experiences with him. And remember, something happens when people pray. Now I know some of you will go, man, not, that's not for me. I'm asking you. This church needs that. The 40509 needs this. The Commonwealth needs it. This nation, it needs an awakening. So let's pray. Every morning when we wake, take a moment and just pray, asking God that he will pour out his spirit and reawaken the church. Let's pray together. God, I ask you that you would reawaken your church. As I think about what happened at Cane Ridge, I'm just amazed by it. It's hard to believe it was just down here a little over 200 years ago, and yet it seems like it's a part of us because it's so close. God, as I read about Pentecost and we think about everything that happened in that just that one day, it just blows us away. 3,000 people coming to Christ and saying yes to you. Amazing. Yeah, chaotic, but I'll take that every single day. God, we realize just how desperately we need your power that comes from you, Holy Spirit, to move in our lives and the lives of others who are like, share in like faith with us here in the 40509. But God, not just here, we pray for an awakening in the commonwealth and, and throughout our nation. God, I say on behalf of every believer here who will join me in this statement, we are sorry for our sins, God. Anything that has offended you that we have done, God, please hear our prayers. Remember your church. Please, Lord, heal our land. God, people desperately need Jesus here. So I pray for the person who is far from you right now. A person who doesn't know how loved they are by you, God. They have no idea the steps that you've taken to forgive them, or they've yet to accept and receive that, that free gift of grace that you offer. Lord, I pray for them to take that step, to reach out, to speak and say, hey, I wanna talk to someone, I wanna know more about this, or be willing to take that step into the baptistry and confess Christ. I pray, God, for people who need you, Lord, I pray you will unite us. 
like you did the apostles and the disciples in the upper room who went to Jerusalem and waited until, until the Holy Spirit came and they joined together constantly in prayer. Lord, let that be a picture of who we are. People who are inspired by what you're doing in our own lives and what we've seen you do in other times and certainly we see you at work in Scripture. God, we pray that you will work through us not in our strength, but in your power at work in us, the dunamis that comes from the Holy Spirit. God, reawaken us. Reawaken Northeast. Reawaken your church all around this, this commonwealth, all around the country, all around the world. God, we pray this with great expectations that you will move in a way that when it's all said and done, we will know. We didn't see through a glass dimly during that time. We saw you face to face. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in with us today. Be sure you're staying connected by following NCC Lex on all social media platforms. Also, if you'd like more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, drop us a message on social or just shoot an email over to notes to at nccleks.org. You guys have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.